So we are in part two of this series called Heroes. I, I love the idea of heroes and superheroes in particular. Summer is always a time for big superhero movies, you know, the summer blockbusters. Last week we talked about a few and we kind of rolled out the idea of Wonder Woman. You guys have, has anybody here, has everyone here seen the new Wonder Woman movie? I won't spoil anything. You can put your hands up, participate a little bit. Only a few of you, I'm surprised. Wonder, the new Wonder Woman movie is, is like the thing that everyone's talking about and they're even making a new Wonder Woman movie. Um, it was great, it was a great movie. <clears throat> However, I think the original Wonder Woman was a little better. And the reason is the original Wonder Woman didn't need a costume. She didn't need a mask. She didn't have any superpowers. It was about a girl who came to save the day, nuke the planet, and, and, and go home. That, that was really the whole point of the movie. Save the day, nuke the planet, and go home. And of course, when I'm talking about the original Wonder Woman, who I'm really talking about is Ellen Ripley. You guys, you guys know her? Oh my gosh, you guys need to watch movies. <laughs> This is Ellen Ripley from Aliens, one of the best sci-fi movies ever made. She's, she was the original Wonder Woman. She was fantastic. And if you haven't seen this yet, I encourage you to see it. It's, it's a total chick flick. You know, the girl comes in and saves the day, rescues the little girl, and kills the female alien. So, Aliens, great movie. That's what you're going to do tonight for your Sunday evening. Um, recommended by Pastor Jim. <clears throat> so, we're talking about heroes. Um, I, I love heroes. L- let me start off by asking you a question. What is a hero? Really, when you think about it, what is a hero? And the, the one thing we can all kind of agree on when it comes to being a hero is that a hero saves the day, right? A hero, they, they show up and they save the day, maybe against insurmountable odds. Maybe they're saving the world or, you know, in Ripley's case, saving the universe, whatever it might be. But they show up and they save the day. And, and when I think about that and, and I think about the, the, I guess, the way to be a hero is to save the day, I kind of feel like, well, I'll never be a hero, like, I'm not showing up in anyone's world and saving the day. I work in an office by myself, and I don't see anyone. So the chances of me saving the day are, are like slim to none. So if, if being a hero means I have to show up and save the day, then for me, and, and maybe even for you, you find being a hero a little bit inaccessible. Like, well, that, that can't be me. I, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that girl. I'm not going to show up and save anyone's day. So I, I guess that means I can't be a hero. I can dream about it. I can fantasize about it. I can celebrate people who do it, but unfortunately, that won't be me. That is until Jesus showed up. See, Jesus comes on the scene, and and with this this phenomenal story and this one simple question, he kind of levels the playing field and makes hero status accessible to all of us. He comes in with this this story that that we're all familiar with, that most of us have, have most definitely heard, and with one question following his story, he completely turns things around. He shifts thinking. He shifts really the way the whole world thinks about being a hero with this incredible story. So we're going we're gonna to start off, uh, the, the, the text kind of starts off this way, on, on, on one occasion, it says, on one occasion, which would kind of infer that there were multiple occasions, that this has happened many, many times, this has happened, but on the, this one particular occasion, an expert in the law, which is just the Bible's fancy way of saying a lawyer, on one occasion, on this one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He came with questions, and his questions weren't questions just to get questions answered. When people would come and listen to Jesus, they would have a Q&A time at the end, and they'd get to ask questions, and Jesus would answer. But this guy's coming not to get an answer to his question. He's coming to trip Jesus. He's coming to trap Jesus. You see, some people didn't like what Jesus was doing. They didn't like all the, the followers that Jesus had and these thousands of people and how the communities were rallying around him. So people would come to kind of trip Jesus up or trap him to turn the crowds against him. On this one occasion, this is what the lawyer came to do. He's come to test Jesus and to trap him. Jesus gets done with his teaching, and the lawyer speaks up during the Q&A. Teacher, he asked. Now imagine, Jesus is standing teaching. Everyone else is sitting. The lawyer stands up, and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what do I have to do to please God? Like, Like, what is most important to God? How do I make sure 
that I'm on God's good side? <clears throat> Jesus, well, that's a good question. That's a really good question. As a matter of fact, that's one of the most important questions you can ask. But instead of answering the question, Jesus kind of volleys the question back to him, and he, and he says this, what is written in the law, he replied. Like, like you're a lawyer, right, right? You've studied the law. You know the law. What, what, what is it the Bible says? What, what is it the law says? Or, or in other words, how do you read it? Like, how do you interpret the law? When you look back over all that's been written in the Old Covenant, <clears throat> what does the law say about honoring God and about pleasing God, about what's most important to God? And the lawyer, he, he already knows the answer to this question. The truth is everyone in Jesus' audience already knows the answer to this question because every Jewish boy and Jewish girl was raised learning the answer to this question. And the answer to this question is I give it, you're going to know it. You're going to start repeating it behind me because it's something you've heard if you spend any time in church, hundreds if not thousands of times. Jesus responds to question, replies to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Will you tell me? You've read the law. You're an expert in the law. What does the law say? The lawyer begins to speak back. And as he speaks back, I imagine that the entire audience begins to murmur the words with him. The lawyer responds, love the Lord your God. Oh yeah, I know this part. With all your heart and the crowd's nodding. And with all your soul. Yeah, that's right. With all your strength and with all your mind. And then there's a pause. And I've got to step out of this really quick just to give you some background. <clears throat> before this Q&A session happened, before this, this guy spoke up and, and asked a question, somebody else spoke up earlier in the teaching and asked Jesus another question. And they asked Jesus a question to, to, to kind of see, what's the most important thing, Jesus? Like, like, what is the most important command? When you look at, at all of these rules that the Jews follow and all of the, the hundreds and hundreds of laws that, that, that have been given to us, what's the most important command? And Jesus answers his question with this answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But then Jesus throws something else in on top of it. He, he's not there. He says, oh yeah, and, and you might know this part, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and in that, that one answer, G Jesus throws on top of, of thousands of years of tradition, of it just being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, just living my life, honoring God and looking up and trying to please God and please God. And I, I don't care about you and I don't care about anyone else. I just got to make sure God loves me. He said, no, no, no. Here, here's the thing. <clears throat> you can live your whole life trying to just please God and forgetting about people, but, but, but that's not how you please God. You please God and you love God by loving his people. And in this one moment, he shatters their mindset. You see, we, we don't get this because, you know, we're 21st century people. We're sitting in, in rows. We've heard about this for years and years, and every teacher talks about this. But for this audience, if you would imagine, for thousands of years they've been taught the only answer to this question is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he said, no, 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 I, I want you to go a step beyond that. I want you to, to learn to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus didn't come up with that on his own. Amazing as that statement is, he actually pulled that statement out of, of all the old covenant, out of the Old Testament. He, if you ask Jesus, well, where did you get that? Like, what do you mean, love your neighbor? He said, I didn't come up with that. I took that from your text. I took that from your scriptures. Actually, as a matter of fact, I took that from the book of Leviticus. And this is really interesting. When we go back, we're going to step out of this conversation and then jump back in. I just want to kind of reference where Jesus pulled this from. In the book of Levit Leviticus, the author who's writing this, he, he actually tells us who the neighbor is. 
If there's ever any question, well, who's my neighbor? Is it, is it you know, the, the, the people that live surrounding my house? Is it just my neighborhood? Is it my street? You know, I, I live on a street, and I, my neighbors are like, you know, if you live like out in the country, like miles away, so do I really even have a neighbor? I guess I, I, I like skate free on that. I don't have to love anyone, just God, because I don't have neighbors. Who, who's your neighbor? The author in Leviticus makes sure you know who the neighbor is. Here's what the author says. He says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone. And then I want you to read these next three words with me. Against anyone among your people. Among your people. If you've ever said, if you've ever used this phrase before, these are my people, or these aren't my people, have you ever used that? I bet you didn't know this, but you're actually quoting the Bible. This is where they get this phrase from, your people or my people. I'm going there because these are my people. I'm going out to dinner or I'm hanging out with these people because these are my people. I'm not going to that party because those are not my people. These are my people. They get this from, from the scripture. He says, don't seek revenge. Don't hold a grudge against your people. <clears throat> and then he goes on and he says, but here's what I want you to do. I, I, I want you in, the, in this very kind of ethnic and this very nationalistic kind of way. I want you to love your people, or in this sense, your neighbor. He says, I want you to love your people as yourself. Another way of saying it would be, <clears throat> don't hold a grudge and don't seek revenge against your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? They're my people. And every Jewish person in Jesus' audience knew who the neighbor was, right? We grew up knowing who's my neighbor. They're my people. Who's my people? The Jews, if you're a Jew, you're my people. You may live thousands of miles away, but if you're a Jew, you're my people. I, I have to live life loving God and loving Jews. That, that's what a Jewish person believed. That's what the majority of Jesus' audience believed because the majority of Jesus' audience were Jews. Those are my people. And Jesus kind of pulls this little bit of scripture out of the Old Testament and brings it into the New. Just like Jesus is kind of the hinge of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, he takes this, this, this little passage out, and this is the hinge on a way of thinking. He's saying essentially this. I'm going to break this mindset that neighbor is nationalistic. I'm going to break this mindset that neighbor has anything to do with race or religion or proximity or nation. I'm going to go beyond that. I want, to, I want to kind of redefine, if I can, what neighbor looks like for you and for me. So Jesus was asked the question, going back into the story with the lawyer. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your, all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer asked Jesus, well, Jesus, what's most important to God? He says, well, how do you interpret it? He said, well, of course, I think I need to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. And having been there, having heard Jesus answer to the question before, he now uses Jesus' answer against Jesus. And, and I think he begins to smile, I think I have to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus, I imagine in this moment, he begins to smile like, good job, man. Like, people usually don't get my questions right. You got it right. Like, you didn't just get the first part, you also got the second part. Most people miss that. Most people are only concerned about this vertical relationship with God, where I live my life trying to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I forget about everyone else. You threw in the horizontal. You threw in that piece where we have to learn to love people. The, the way we love God is by loving people because how can you love God without loving his people, the people he made, the people he created in his image? And the reason this was so important, the reason this was so significant in the text is because for years, people lived their life just saying, well, I'm just loving God. But how do I know you're loving God? I can't see it. I, I, don't, I mean, I can't see if you're loving God. Can you tell if someone's loving God? No, but I can tell if you're loving your neighbor. I can tell how you treat people. I can tell you you talk to people. I can tell what you do with the people that are around you. 
Jesus said, this is how they will know that you love God, by loving your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer gives the question, and Jesus is like, man, good job, good answer, you did it. Finally, someone's listening. And Jesus began to shift focus and move on. And the lawyer says, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Jesus, I'm not done. That was the question behind the question. Here's, here's my real question, Jesus. And he's throwing this out to try to, to try to trip Jesus up. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Oh, okay, okay, hold on, Jesus, hold on, hold on. I, I've got another question for you. Here's the real question, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? And he's asking Jesus this question because he wants Jesus to get tripped up. He thinks in his mind, I think I know where Jesus is going to go with this. And if he goes this way, this is going to turn the crowds against him. This is going to divide him. The people will leave like, I've done it. Many men have come before me and tried to trip Jesus up. Nobody's been able to do it. But man, I think I got him. I think he's going to answer the question. I think he's going to tell me who the neighbor is. And when he does, it'll divide the crowd and I'll have won. Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? Who really, who, who is my neighbor? And what really, kind of the heart behind this question is this. What's the minimum amount I have to do to love my neighbor? What's the minimum amount of, of, of neighbor loving that I have to do to make sure I'm on the good side with God? Like, what's the minimum amount required for me to make sure I, I'm loving God? I don't want to have to love too much. I don't want to give too much. I don't want to have to, to have to show too much interest. What's the least amount I can do and still make sure I'm pleasing God? See, but they had the question wrong. It's not a who question. They were actually asking the wrong question altogether. The question really isn't, isn't who is my neighbor. The question is more of a, of a what question. And the question looks more like this. What does neighbor love actually look like? So stop being concerned with, with the minimum requirement. I mean, anytime anyone in, in, in the scripture would ask kind of the minimum requirement, what's the least I have to do? Like, that's, Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. That's not the point of it. We don't like that as parents, do we? It's like if your, your child came to you, your son came to you and said, hey, dad, What's, what's the least amount I can do? Like, how far can I push you? How bad can I be before you blow your top? Like, I, I know like, over here is the blowing the top part. How can I make sure I'm on this side of the line? How close can I get? How can I toe the line to make sure I'm right there before you blow your top? And his parents are thinking, no, that's not what I want. I don't want you to be like one step above bad. I, I want you to be great. I, I push the bar for excellence. I expect you to be up here, not like towing the line of bad here. And that's essentially what this guy's asking Jesus. Jesus, how close can I get to sin? How, how, how close can I get before I cross the line and I'm no longer pleasing God? What's the minimum amount of love I can show someone and still be on God's good side? And anytime someone asks a question like that, I mean, we ask questions like that, don't we? I hear it all the time. Pastor, like, what do you think it is? Is this a sin? Well, yeah, I don't think that's good. Okay, but what if I take it, is that a sin? What about, what about this? Is this a sin? And what we're really asking is, how close can I get to sin without sinning? I'm not concerned about being good. I'm concerned about being as close to bad as I can get without being bad. And Jesus knows the heart in that question. And anytime he's asked, any time in the scripture where he's asked, basically, how far can I get? How close can I get to the line without crossing the line? Do you know what happens? Jesus goes silent. The Bible goes silent. Because Jesus isn't concerned with the minimum amount required. Jesus wants you to be all in. Who's my neighbor? The man asked Jesus. Jesus, in, in, in his likely fashion, starts off by saying this. Well, let me tell you a story. A man 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. And I imagine at this point, Jesus' audience, especially the, the lawyer, is a little ticked off like, whoa, 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 come on, Jesus. This is what you do. You get asked a simple question and instead of answering, you start into a story or you ask another question or, or you leave everyone confused like, like don't go this way. Just, just answer the question. Who's my neighbor? I imagine Jesus sits back and smiles. A man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a treacherous road. There's about 33 to 3,500 feet in elevation difference between Jerusalem and Jericho. And it's just like a 17-mile road and it's dangerous and it's a treacherous road to travel down. This man's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's attacked by robbers. He's jumped by men. And these men, they jump him and they strip him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away leaving him half dead. I mean, of course they stripped him of his clothes because clothes were valuable. <clears throat> Not a lot of people had a lot of clothes. Take his clothes, of course we would. They beat him and they leave him for dead. And, and, and before I go, I go on any further, I, I, again, I want to take a step out of this just to ask a simple question and we'll jump back in. And I'm going to ask you all to participate. I know you don't like participating. I know I had to tell you to put your hands up. I'm going to ask you to participate with a show of hands because I'm, I'm really curious. Even if you're at home watching online, you're sitting at, at, you know, by yourself in your room and it's dark. I want you to put your hand up if you know the answer to this question. Here, here it is. Ready? Can we all play? Everybody participate? How many of you before now have ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan? It's almost everyone. What I find incredibly interesting about what Jesus is about to do, he tells a story that has not just survived 2,000 years, but it, it was revolutionary 2,000 years ago and it's revolutionary today. People still talk about it. Churches still fight about it. Congregations have been split over it. What Jesus goes with this, this, this parable, it is the most parable-defining, shifting parable he's ever told. It really is. It's the most shifting paradigm like, like he ever talks about. He tells this one story, and in this one story, he completely shatters people's mindsets, preconceived ideas. He, he, he asks a question at the end that is so probing. It's so easy. It's so simple. But the answer is so convicting. Jesus begins to share about the Good Samaritan. My guess is you've heard about a Good Samaritan. As a matter of fact, this parable has become more than a parable. It's now an idiom, right? When we see somebody do something good for people, we say, oh, he is such a Good Samaritan. We don't even know what Samaritans are. Like if somebody's asking, what's a Samaritan? I don't know. I don't know what a Samaritan is, but he's a good one. We put on the name of organizations and businesses, nonprofits that help people. But we don't even know what Samaritans are. Jesus tells this incredible story. A man on his way from Jerusalem, a Jewish man on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho gets jumped by a group of guys. He's beaten half to dead. They strip him of his clothes. He's lying naked in the road, beaten to death, just bleeding out. And two religious people come by. Two Jewish religious people come by. And they see this man beating and battered on this road. And what do they do? They like skirt by. Like, I ain't, I, ain't, I ain't getting involved. I ain't touching this. You see, their mindset was that if somebody was beaten and battered, they deserve to be beaten and battered. That what goes around comes around. And if this man is beaten and battered, then surely he deserved to be beaten and battered. I'm not beaten and battered, so I don't deserve. What does not beaten and battered have to do with beaten and battered? I'll leave it alone. He deserved it. He got what's coming to him. I'm going to go on my way. And these two religious men that were given the command to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving their neighbor as themselves, did not love God and did not love their neighbor. And they go their way. And the audience is thinking, oh, that's terrible. These guys should have known better. 
And then Jesus changes the whole story. And he says, but, but a Samaritan. And I imagine what, what, as soon as he said that word, the audience is just, ugh, they're like uncomfortable. You see, if you grew up in church, you know that, that Jews and Samaritans don't get along. But, but I, I want to take a moment to just try to explain how much they don't get along. The, the Jews and, and Samaritans, not only didn't they talk to each other, they didn't look, they didn't touch, they didn't intermarry, they didn't intermingle, they didn't converse, they avoided each other. It, the, the relationship is like, I don't know how else to say it, like institutionalized racism. It's like apartheid. It's institutionalized racism. We all know the rules. Jews hate us. Jews mistreat us. Jews oppress us. And we don't argue. We don't talk. We're the oppressed. We, 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 oh, we're okay. It's just the way life is. This is the cards we've been dealt. We've been born to be less than you. That, that's the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. They hated them. And the fact that Jesus would bring the Samaritan into the conversation surely was uncomfortable. But the fact that it looked like he was about to make the Samaritan the hero of the story, I mean, I just imagine people were outraged. How dare you? If it wasn't bad enough that you added to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength by, by loving your neighbor, now you're going to make a Samaritan the hero of the story? And I imagine the lawyer at this point is like sitting back with glee. Like, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. I'm going to win. I'm going to be the one who put the crowds against Jesus. Jews hated Samaritans. They were so incredibly racist. And in our culture, I know we feel like we've moved beyond, beyond racism and, and, and beyond the, the, the idea that, that people are created unequally. But Jesus asked a question at the end that is so simple and so incredibly convicting. It falls, causes us to kind of re-examine our hearts, to ask, is, is, is there any bit of racism left in me? You see, my guess is when, when he says, but a Samaritan, in, in the story, that all the audience began to think, well, surely a Samaritan's responsible for the crime. The Samaritans were the robbers. They were the ones that beat him up and took him. How often do we hear of things, of crimes that have happened, and our minds immediately go to a certain kind of person or a certain race of people? This is the culture they were born in. But a Samaritan, as he traveled the same treacherous road, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he did what the religious people didn't do. He took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged him, which means he, he touched him. The Samaritan touched this Jewish person. Who would do such a thing? He bandaged his wounds. He poured in oil and wine, which was expensive. Then he put the man on his donkey, which means he picked him up, put him on his donkey, and this Jewish man rode while the Samaritan walked. And he took him to an inn and he paid an innkeeper. He paid to make sure this man would live, to bandage this man's wounds. Who would do such a thing? A hero? He paid an innkeeper and he took care of him. I'm thinking, Jesus, I, I don't even, I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that for a Samaritan and I don't know any Samaritan that would do that for me. And just to make matters worse, because Jesus always kind of liked to heap things on. He says, then the next day, they're thinking, wait, wait a minute. Like he spent all night taking care of this guy. He spent all night bandaging his wounds, caring for him, making sure this man would survive. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And he says to the innkeeper, look after him. And when I return, because I will return and I want to check in on this guy. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have caring for him. 
So it's not good enough that this Samaritan just got off his donkey or got off his horse, bandaged this man's wounds, and then took this Jewish man to an inn. And he didn't just pay for one night to watch over him. He paid the innkeeper for another night and paid the innkeeper to watch over him. And they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, this is outrageous. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't care for a Samaritan and a Samaritan wouldn't care for me. And Jesus is saying, here's the point. Here's what Jesus did. And this is absolutely incredible. He forever redefined neighbor. Forever. No longer would neighbor be defined as, as nation or as race or as proximity. He forever redefined neighbor for everybody in every generation, in every nation, forever. From this point on, nobody would ever be able to say, my neighbor is only the people who live around me. My neighbor is only my people. My neighbor is only my race. My neighbor is only my religion. Jesus shattered all that. He said, no, 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 no. Your neighbor is anybody you meet ever. It's the person who lives across the street and the person you work with. It's the person who's suffering in a third world country and the person who's living at the, the, the top of life out in California. Your neighbor is every person you meet ever. They're your neighbor. He forever redefined who neighbor was. And, and we don't get this because, again, we're 21st century people who've heard this story. This audience, I, I imagine at this point, is outraged. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Who do you think you are to say such a thing? We've been taught from a young age to hate them, to never touch them, to not go near them. It's always been about the Jews and our people and our God and our religion and our nation. And Jesus said, no longer. No longer. Jesus expanded, and this is something we miss. But for this group of people, he expanded the definition of neighbor beyond the boundaries of Jewish scripture. No longer would the story of Christianity, would the story of God, of their God, be about the Jews and Israel and their nation. He said, with me, I'm the hinge. The story opens up to everybody, Jew or non-Jew, Christian or non-Christian, churchgoer or non-churchgoer. This is for everyone. And what's incredible is if you find yourself here and you're not a churchgoer, you're not a Christ follower, this story applies as much to you as it does to me because we care for people. And you may say, well, I, I don't follow Jesus, but the truth is if you're caring for people, you've already taken a step in his direction. And let me encourage you, follow him. I say this all the time because following Jesus makes your life better because it takes your eyes off of you and your small world and our small problems or maybe even our bigger problems. And it, it causes us to think bigger and think about everyone. That's why we say Jesus, following Jesus makes you better at life and makes your life better. Jesus changed the world forever. And with this one simple question, he shattered every preconceived idea. He looked at the lawyer, the man who thought he had him trapped. After telling this whole story, he asked this one question. I love this. He says, which of these three you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? I mean, you've heard the story. Which of these three? Which of these three? And let me ask this another way. Which of these three loved the Lord their God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving a stranger as himself? We all know the answer. We can answer, but for this lawyer, it was so uncomfortable. Because the minute he answered this question, he's now accountable to his words. If I say it's that Samaritan, 
then I've got to do what I say and I've got to care for Samaritans. I don't even know that I can do that. I mean, he is tormented by this answer. I'm sure at this point he's thinking, why did I ask this question? What a stupid question. Which of these three? It's a question that's convicting, but a question that's very easy. And the minute this lawyer gives the answer, he's accountable. We know this because we try to do this with our kids, don't we? We tell them, don't do this. Can you agree to not do this? Because the minute they say yes, they've agreed to our terms. And now they're accountable to the punishment if they don't follow through on their terms. And our kids, they're not, they're not like idiots. They're smart, right? What do they do? They avoid it. They dodge the question. They run out of the room. They make excuses. They argue. Because they know, if I say yes, I'm now accountable to the answer. I'm accountable to the punishment. I'm accountable to live to what I'm agreeing to. Which of these three showed the man love? Which of these three loved God the most by caring for the stranger? The lawyer replies to Jesus. I mean, really, the only way he can reply. The one, and I love that. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. That's how much hate he had in his heart for this other group of people. I can't even do it, Jesus. It's too much. The one who had mercy on him. And I imagine at this point, the crowd is uncomfortable and there's murmuring. And then Jesus says this with a big smile on his face and a big toothy grin to the lawyer who thought he trapped Jesus, I think Jesus responded, now go and do likewise. Go, be the Samaritan. I'll tell you what, on that day, there were no applause. No one was talking. There was stunned silence as Jesus changed the way we think about neighbors forever. It's not proximity, it's not race, it's not religion, it's not kind. From this day forward for the entire world, I, I, mean, I, I can't imagine being in that audience. They were witnessing history without realizing it. Neighbors would forever be changed. So l- let me ask you, let me, let me turn, take Jesus' question and ask you, which of these three do you, and you and you, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. It's the one who saw the need and met it. The one who knew the price and paid it. The one who didn't talk himself out of it. Let let, let me tease this out a little bit more for you. Which of these three loved the Lord their God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all his mind and strength by loving a stranger as himself? It's the man who saw the need and met it who knew the price and paid it and who didn't talk himself out of it. Final question. Which of these three was the hero in the story? A man who I'm sure grew up believing he could never be a hero. Especially not to to the Jews who were created so far above. It's the man who saw the need and met it, who knew the price and paid it. And he didn't talk himself out of it. See, in just a few weeks after this moment, Jesus would do the very same thing. That's why when he tells us to go and do likewise, to go and be the Samaritan, he's saying, guys, I'm only asking you to do what I'm going to do. In a few weeks, I'm going to go and I'm going to lay down my life. I see the need. I see your, your, your debt of sin. I see the price and I know you can't pay it. I'll pay it for you. And I won't even talk myself out of it, even though I don't want to do it. I will lay down my life for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, 
and for me and for the entire world. Now go and do likewise. I'll close with this story. There's a story of a young man named Charles. Charles grew up in a small town in Virginia. Uh, he worked at a, his mother, rather, was a single mom who worked at a mill. It was a very poor town. As a matter of fact, if I told you the name of the town, it wouldn't matter because you wouldn't even know where it was on a map. You couldn't find it. It's just, it's small, it's remote, it's poverty stricken. The guy has no money. His mom has no money. He's a young man. He's in high school and he has a paper route to try to make money to, to help his mom. He buys his own clothes. Sometimes he has to buy his own food. He's a senior in college. He's about a month away from graduation. <clears throat> and about a month away from graduation, he, he feels like God has placed a call on, him life to be, on his life to go into ministry. God has asked him, in what he feels, to go and preach the message of Jesus. But he has no money. He's not sure what to do. One Sunday, Charles goes to church, and, and after church, Sunday evening church service, he's, he's out and he's, he's walking home, and he sees a man across the street, a man he knew, a man named Julian. And he walks over, and they start talking. Julius, Julian's an older man, but they're friends, and he's got a kind of a loud voice. He says, hey, Charles, what are you going to do after graduation? Charles says, well, believe it or not, I, I feel like, like God's asked me to go into ministry, and I, but I, I, I don't have the money to go to seminary or Bible college. I, I don't know what to do. <clears throat> Around this moment, as they're talking under the streetlight, the, the, the preacher of the church, Reverend Emmerich, he, he's on his way out from church, and as small church pastors do, you know, he, he leaves the church and he, he locks the door because, you know, service is over and puts the keys back in his pocket and he begins to make his journey home. <clears throat> and Julian, who sees the pastor, sees the reverend come out of the church, says, Reverend Emmerich, come over here, come over here. He says, I, I have a question for you. Give me a minute of your time. He says, I don't know if you know this, but do you know that, that Charles feels like God's calling him into ministry, that God's calling him to preach? but he doesn't have any money to go. Is, is there anything you can do about this? And the reverend said, you know, I'm not really sure, Charles, but come back and see me tomorrow and we'll talk a little more. They go their way. The next day, Charles goes and he sees, he sees the reverend and he begins to tell the reverend the story. You know, here's my mom. She has no money. We're poor. We're in this destitute town and, and I have a paper out to try to make ends meet, but, but I don't have enough money to go. But I really feel like God's asked me to go and to be a preacher. The reverend says, okay, give me a few weeks and then come back. A few weeks go by. Charles comes back. He meets with the reverend there and says, okay, Charles, here's, here's what I'm able to do. He says, you're going to go to college. I'm going to send you to the University of Richmond. And as long as you keep your grades up, you'll never have a bill. What the reverend didn't know is he had no idea what hung in the balance of this man Charles going to Bible college. He had no idea what would happen if this man went to Bible college and was able to go to seminary and would become a pastor. But he knew there was a need and he knew he could meet it. He knew there is a price, and he decided to pay it, and he didn't talk himself out of it. And Charles would later say, I, I, I went to seminary with $75 in my pocket and a call of God on my life, and here's how I went. Because one man did for me what he couldn't do for everyone. He did for one what, what he wanted to do for everyone but didn't have the resources to. But he saw my need, and he met it. He saw the price, and he decided to pay it, and he didn't talk himself out of it. Now, you have no idea who Charles is, and this story sounds, oh, it's a good story. Here's where it gets bigger. Charles would become Charles Stanley, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the largest churches in the world. He starts a ministry called In Touch Ministries, one of the first to present the gospel on every Sunday morning. You've probably seen him as you flip through the channels on your Sundays off. His ministry would reach millions of people worldwide. Charles would have a son named Andy. Andy would start a church called North Point Community Church who reaches 40,000 people every single Sunday. 
And then Andy would start a network to help small churches do the same thing they're doing to reach the world with the message of Jesus. This network would come along like young churches, young church plants, our church plant. When everyone else pulled out from resourcing and helping us, this network came in and said, we'll resource, we'll help, we'll equip, we'll coach. Because we're in this for the call, we're in this to see people meet Jesus. You see, I owe a lot to that reverend doing something for Charles. But that reverend had no idea what hung in the balance. He had no idea that by meeting the price, by meeting the need, by not talking himself out of it, this man would go on to reach millions of people with the gospel. He would have a son that would reach thousands, if not millions of people with the gospel, who would create a network to help young churches, our church, do the same thing. You see, a lot hung in the balance. But he had no idea. He just knew there was a need, and he could meet it. And he knew there was a price, and he could pay it. And he didn't talk himself out of it. And I think Jesus is asking the same for you. You may feel like hero status is inaccessible for you. Jesus said, no, I, I've leveled the playing field. I want you to be a hero in someone else's life. When you see the need, and you will, you see them all the time. When you see the need and you can meet it, meet it. Even if you know the price and, and, and there's a party that doesn't want to pay it, don't talk yourself out of it. Pay it. Be the hero in someone's life like Jesus was for you. Go and do likewise. Go. Be the Samaritan. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this incredible story, God, that God, for thousands of years, it's been told, God, in church circles and outside of church circles, God, it's been argued about, it's been incredibly divisive in some groups, God, but paradigm shifting for so many others. God, that we wouldn't just think of the people that we need to care about, God, as our family or our friends or our people, but God, that you open the door up to care for everyone. I pray that as, as we begin to respond to this, God, and as we begin to say, I, I will go and I will do likewise, I will see the need and I'll meet it. I see the price and I'll pay it. I won't talk myself out of it. God, as we move into our world with that attitude, would you open the door, God? Would you present the need? Would you give us the opportunity to love, God, to be a hero in somebody else's life? I pray that as we do, God, we would see this make a difference. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.